Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens. This is part two of my interview with Colin Roche of blog and book, Pragmatic Capitalism. So Colin, in our last episode, we were talking about inflation versus disinflation versus deflation you know, where we are likely to be heading going into 2023. It looks to you like inflation probably did peak, you know, whether it was four or six months ago, but but the Federal Reserve has to look at that backward looking data. And so we're, we're likely to see some further rate hikes, I think. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, I, I think there. So it's kind of it's interesting the way this actually flows through the the market. You know, the Fed is technically you know, their, the actual Fed funds rate is much lower than what I would say the economy is reflecting. So for instance, the, mm-hmm. the two-year treasury bill is, um, you know, as of right now, like three and a half, three and three quarters. Um, and so the policy rate is much lower than that right now. But the Fed, and this is part of what I was talking about earlier with open mouth policies, that the Fed has communicated to the market that they're basically going to three and a half to four percent, something like that, and so that's mm-hmm. what the that's what the market is basically pricing in right now, and it's why you've seen this, you know, sort of front running of the Fed in the in the two year and the even the ten year, um, but it's interesting. It's starting to get you know kind of screwy because the the back end of the curve now is inverted relative to the front end which is right. generally indicative of an environment where the market now expects that the fed is going to have to walk some of this back in the future so inverted yield curves are typically consistent with you know if not recession certainly economic slowdown which i think is pretty obviously apparent at this point but the bond market is starting to say to the fed you know hey you know, 4% is probably the the threshold here where you can't really afford to be too much more aggressive. Yeah, but is the Federal Reserve saying you want to bet? I mean, you know, like you said, that their entire profession is sort of was scarred by the 1970s, right? I mean, are, are they really going to be able to relax until the CPI is under 4%? It seems like they want to see the economy bleed some before they really step off the gas on the interest rate side of things. So they, I think, want to see, you know, this is it's kind of weird that this is their perspective, because this was also their perspective back in 2021 was that they they wanted to wait to raise rates until they saw that the unemployment problem was definitively solved. And so the the Fed was very clear that they weren't going to start raising rates until the unemployment rate came down to about 4%. And unemployment and just employment in general is a huge lagging indicator. And yep. so you know, they're waiting on this lagging indicator to basically trigger whether or not the job is done. You know, they wanted to make sure that the recovery was fully that fully intact, basically. And that was okay. they were using the unemployment rate as their their barometer there. 
Now they're using the unemployment rate rising a little bit as their barometer that inflation has started to, to moderate to some degree. They want to see demand basically start to moderate. They want to make sure that there, there isn't a wage price spiral like there was in like the 1970s. And so they're again looking at the unemployment rate. And you know, the interesting thing with that is that, you know, let's say that, you know, I think the unemployment rate fell a lot faster during COVID than a lot of people expected, which is in part why the Fed kind of found themselves backpedaling to some degree because they were waiting for unemployment to come down to 4%. And then it came down really very quickly in 2021. And then they were kind of like, whoa, this is a little bit surprising. And un- inflation is rising a little bit faster. Well, wasn't, I mean, wasn't a lot of that policy driven? I mean, basically folks leaving the, the labor forces basically had nothing to do with the Fed's actions, right? In terms of political policy or transfer payments or just You could get into a whole other complex debate about how much Fed policy and, you know, inflation and interest rates even has a trade off with unemployment. So, you know, there's a, you know, the old Phillips curve model is basically the idea that there's a direct relationship between inflation and the unemployment rate, which, you know, for for 10, 15 years before COVID looked like totally bunk economics. Um, yeah. Because unemployment was low and inflation was low, which really, you know, that shouldn't happen according to the textbook model. So, you know, again, in some to some degree, it kind of looks like they're working off this old school textbook model that, you know, my worry now is that you could get it. You could find yourselves in an environment here where the unemployment rate actually starts to spike a lot more. You could start to see cracks in the foundation of like the financial system and the economy that and especially the housing market that makes the Fed really, really uncomfortable where you're going to get inflation that starts to peel off much faster than they expected at some point. And then they're going to be caught flat footed again, which would be it would be crazy to to me to see the Fed get it basically completely wrong in both directions, you know, by basically (laughs) being too accommodative, too far into COVID and then being too restrictive coming out of the, you know, the flip side of it, which is just, well, I mean, it, honestly, that makes total sense to me. I, I got to take the it, other it does, side of that honestly, call and for it's, them to get it, it completely wrong. It, it just, it would be, I don't know. I, um, it would like be impressive a, to me if they got it, <laughs> if they got it that wrong on both sides, which is, it looks increasingly like there's a really high probability of that yeah. happening here because they're, you know, they're looking at this data in a way that is just sort of, I don't know, mind numbingly, you know, rear view mirror looking. And I, I get it because I think they're, they're so scarred by the 1970s, but I just, you know, in my model, my framework, the odds of a 1970s was just, it was never really a very, I mean, I, but I, I would argue there's, they're scarred by, they're scarred by 2021. I think again, in my opinion, they're willing to make a mistake. They just, they don't want to make the mistake that they just made. So I, yeah. I think I agree with you, though. Then the risk is that you just make the different mistake. Well, that's what's interesting is that, you know, I, they they could be causing or I don't want to say causing recession. I think mm-hmm. there was going to be an economic slowdown no matter what. I mean, a lot of stuff just got way ahead of itself, you know, whether it was real estate or, you mm-hmm. know, the silly stuff in crypto or, you know, the meme stock boom. Like there was 
frankly, there was a lot of really stupid speculation going on for a lot of the last two, three, four years. You could argue that a lot of the, you know, the market, the stock market, and even the real estate market was frothy before COVID. And so then getting this huge boom, you know, on the back of COVID that kind of made everything even more frothy. um, To me, it just, you created an environment where, frankly, like, if you if you imagine that COVID didn't even happen, well, you know, the COVID boom was basically just the blow off top of like the big, long trends that were going on for the last 10 years. And so, yeah, to some degree, you're getting a give back here that was much needed, you know, and this is part of the thing that makes it makes investing in economics really you know, difficult to kind of navigate is that nobody likes going through these sort of short term downturns. But to some degree, when you get these short term booms, you need a give back to some degree. You know, the stock market, Mm -hmm. for instance, is an entity that it can't go up 20 percent every single year because the underlying (laughs) entities don't actually grow 20 percent per year. So you, you get periods where the the stock market goes through big, big booms like that because of in part due to speculation and, you know, growing multiples and things like that. Well, you should expect a give back at some point. And that's that's part of the healthy process of of any, you know, capitalist economy growing and booming and busting over time. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a I'm a real estate investor and I'm a homeowner and I it's like this assumption that higher housing prices are always good. And I'm like, hey, hey, look, I could talk my book and say, yeah, I want real estate prices to go up. But you could also say, I want home affordability to increase, right? Like, so it, yeah. it kind of depends. Who, who are you asking? Are you talking the, the home sellers or the home buyers? Because for home buyers, these higher asset prices are terrible. It's, it's uh, you simply, you can't afford a home. Yeah. Well, and it's, it, you know, it's interesting, especially for, for your listeners in the alternative space where it's like, you know, one of the reasons to use alternatives is to buffer the, the really high growth parts mm-hmm. of the economy. So, you know, the yeah. stock market or something like the, especially like the, the growth areas of the stock market, like the technology space or, you right. know, like the venture capital space, things like that. You know, these are inherently really high growth segments and, Sure, you could go 100% into those spaces, but you're going to go through these big, big gyrations. And, you know, one of the values of, of adding diversification and alternatives is that you basically are building in buffers around that, you know, that really sexy high growth component where mm-hmm. you're basically dampening the volatility of that component. And, you know, that's just that's a good thing in my opinion, is that I think most people would much prefer to have something like a 5% average annual return with a low rate of volatility rather than, say, a 10% rate of growth where you're going through these huge booms and busts where, yeah, in the long run, you end up with probably a much higher balance. But in the short term, you go through just really painful you know, ups and downs and these busts that, you know, frankly, are the, the components that behaviorally make investing really, really difficult because these short-term busts, they're really psychologically testing for people where they can, you know, you might in theory have a, you know, a 30 or 40 year time horizon, but behaviorally, I think most people have about a, a, probably about a 30 day time horizon psychologically where they can't really go through 
big drawdowns and really painful periods for any sure. sort of prolonged period. Right. So, okay, let's talk about real estate and, and alternatives. Um, because, you know, even as prices were going up in the past year, we saw large asset managers, you know, the, the largest asset managers, um, you know, purchasing single family homes, continuing to invest in multifamily, just investing in real estate in general. And we see those inflows continue into 2022 and, and I'd assume into 2023. Um, but I think, well, I, actually, I don't want to put any words into your mouth. Do you think the housing market is going to correct in, in the next 12 to 24 months? I, I do not see how the current imbalance with interest rates versus prices, I do not see how it can sustain the levels of demand that don't, I think, put some downward pressure on prices. I, I think this is a this is a very, very different environment than, say, 2008, in large mm -hmm. part because you didn't get the, the really low quality speculative borrowing that you got in the run up to the financial crisis. I mean, that was the thing that and this is the thing, frankly, that makes any boom turn into a crash is that or any bust turn into a crash. I mean, is that, you know, you can get a kind of garden variety downturn, but then at some point in a panic, in a real in a real market crash, you get forced selling. And that typically mm -hmm. is the, the thing that you get margin calls and things like, you know, in, in the, during the financial crisis, you had a lot of forced sellers of real estate. So a lot of delinquent borrowers and, you know, even in the, in the investment banking space and the retail investing space, you had a lot of people that were forced sellers of equities and real estate in that environment, which is the thing that really made that environment incredibly scary because you get these sort of waterfall types of declines at times. Whereas this environment doesn't really have that low quality aspect where you could end up with a really big forced selling um, downturn. So it's it's very different in terms of quality. But the, the problem right now is that you've got a big supply demand imbalance still where, and this is mostly coming from the imbalance coming through interest rates, where the affordability is still very, very low. Prices are still very high, mm -hmm. but now you just have very low demand because interest rates are so high that it's, it's very difficult for most people to afford to buy at that new price with this existing interest rate. And so I think there's got to be some sort of give back. It's either you know, my guess is it probably happens on both sides that you probably get eventually lower interest rates and lower prices, but there's going to be something that has to come back into equilibrium to create the demand that's consistent with a, a you know, rising prices again, just because you, you don't have enough demand at current interest rates to sustain the current prices. So I don't think it's going to be a big downturn. My my guess right now is that you're going to see something like a probably like a five to 10% downturn, something that's kind of more consistent with like the 1991 style real estate downturn. So not a, not a big, big, you know, waterfall crescendo style downturn, but something that is still a, you know, 10, maybe 15%, 20%, maybe in some sort of much more speculative markets. Mm -hmm. But, and I think that in the long run, that's probably a good thing because I think, you know, frankly, you know, the real estate boom in the last 
10 years was just in a lot of ways like the stock market boom where it was just unsustainable trends to some degree where the pricing was was just got it got a little bit too far ahead of itself and i think some some moderation in pricing is probably a good thing in the long run that you know by 2023 2024 we probably find ourselves in a you know a legitimate real estate recession where I think the Fed will have clarity on inflation and they'll come back to a position where they say, okay, you know, maybe the Fed funds rate can come back into, you know, 2%, say, because we've done the job on inflation and the real estate market has softened enough. And, uh, and that'll create more of an equilibrium between mortgage rates, where maybe mortgage rates come into, you know, something like four and a half to 5%, something like that, where people mm -hmm. then, you know, look at the, the, especially the relative rates. And they say, okay, well, you know, I'm refinanced at 3% back in 2019, but I'm, I'm happy to buy a house that's now at a, you know, a 10% discount relative to where it was in 2021 with a four and a half percent mortgage rate. Absolutely. Okay. So, you know, should, should investors wait it out? I mean, it, cause it seems to me What's the technical, the trader term capitulation? It seems to me like the asset owners, the sellers right now haven't really capitulated, you know, and, and to, to your point, they're not being forced to, right? Like yeah. back in 2008, there was a lot of forced selling. Um, so I guess if you have the wherewithal, whether as an investor, as a homeowner, and and you can just sort of, you know, hold, then then maybe you will rather than, than take that loss. But But you think that there may be you know, the, the, the new pricing will sort of, it will, I guess, uh, you know, it will be forced on the sellers who have to sell maybe in Q1, maybe in Q2. And, you know, maybe we start to see some real price movement in, in the first yeah, half. You, I think year. that's a reasonable view. You could start, you know, not a lot of forced selling, but certainly the, you know, anyone who wants to move, I think is going to, you know, come, you know, face to face with this reality that the demand in a lot of markets just isn't going to be there for, for those properties. And this is probably more so true in, you know, like the, you know, the, the middle tier, upper tier markets where you don't just have yeah. all cash buyers and, you know, the super wealthy that are able to come in regardless of what the mortgage rate is. So, um, but yeah, I think that in general, you're going to get some softening of the, of the market until you kind of find this equilibrium point with, with mortgage rates that, you know, creates more of a, you know, we had a, I mean, what is it? The about a hundred percent increase in the cost of a mortgage in the last year or so, right? Um, which is, you know, compared to, you know, look at something like disposable incomes. I mean, disposable incomes only went up about 15% since the beginning of COVID. So, you know, either maybe I'm wrong, maybe people just value housing so much more after COVID that, <laughs> You know, they just are willing to spend more of their of their income on housing now, and the you know the the what looks like exorbitant cost of a mortgage right now. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, here's the thing that makes this tricky: housing is a big, big, slow moving animal. I'm, I mean, I remember back in 2005 when the you know 2006 the the yield curve inverted in late 2006, and you didn't really get you know, pressure in the real estate market for really a couple more years, basically, you started to see some softening, but it yeah. didn't really materialize for several years. And that's, I mean, that's part of the thing with housing is that 
housing is a big, big, slow moving industry. And so even when it starts to look like it's obvious that things are going to slow down, well, you know, people are people are stubborn about their houses, you know, mm -hmm. first of all. And it's just this big, slow moving industry where things take a long time to materialize. And so you might not see all of this play out for several years. And that's why I kind of, you know, I keep telling people all through this year, when you've got a a real estate slowdown that's in progress, well, these aren't these aren't the type of economic environments that just sort of end, you know, they're not like, you know, there isn't like a beginning and an end. This is just sort of a process of it takes a long time for, you know, think of it like a big ship making a turn. I mean, this, you know, this isn't something it doesn't just pivot, you know, it it takes a long time mm. for this to you know make its way around. And that's that's the situation that we're in that makes this a really testing environment for a lot of people from a especially from a short term psychological perspective is that this isn't going to end in some sort of crescendo. It's just going to kind of, you know, slowly, it's going to be a slow economic downturn that takes, mm -hmm. you know, time to play out. And the, the next 18 to 24 months are going to be the, I think the time period over which this, this sort of pricing or repricing of everything materializes. And it's not going to be a, I don't think it's going to be a 2008 where you get this sort of like crescendo downturn. It's just going to be more of a, of a process, like, you know, a more traditional sort of housing downturn where like 1991, it just, it takes, you know, several years for this to materialize and play out before things really find their footing and people are able to, to come back in and feel really comfortable about, about the environment again. Yeah. So without that, you know, catalyst, to make it happen quickly, it might just be sort of a slow and painful asset reprice that plays out over multiple years. You know, the thing I think is interesting is, um, you know, I think you mentioned a five to ten percent correction in housing prices, possibly, or, or maybe even fifteen percent or higher. But if that happens over twenty-four months, and inflation is seven and a half percent, let's say, and, and the correction over twenty-four months in the housing. Uh, market is 15%. Isn't that just going to be flat in nominal terms? Yeah. So well, I think it's going to be, I, I think we're going to see a, a real nominal decline. So, okay. or sorry, I, we're going to see a, re, a nominal decline of okay. five to 10. So I think that in wow. real terms, you could get something that looks, that looks and maybe even feels to a lot of people like something much larger. Um, okay. But it, it's still, you know, you're going to get you're going to get still a, a it's going to occur during a, a, a disinflationary period, I think, in all likelihood, which is, you know, it, by 2020, the end of 2023, you know, if the rate of inflation is has declined in disinflationary terms down to, say, you know, three percent, um, you know, it won't feel it won't feel you know, that bad relative to say like a 2008, where you get a nominal decline that is really, really significant. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So, you know, anything else that real estate investors should be thinking about going into 2023? Well, I, th I think it's important to maintain a long-term perspective with real estate. I mean, real estate is inherently you know, part of the reason why it's this big, slow moving entity is because it's a very, very long term 
asset class by definition, basically. You know, mm-hmm. I think the average American stays in their house something like nine to 10 years now. Um, I built a what I call a duration model for asset cl- the, all asset classes in a recent paper that I wrote called All Duration Investing, where I calculated real estate as basically being a, a 25-year instrument. Um, so residential real estate is a 25-year instrument in that model, which is consistent with obviously very, very long time horizons. This is longer than, I mean, I only calculated the equity market at 17 17 years or so. Um, So real estate is an even longer duration instrument than the equity market is. And so I think that when people go into investing in real estate, I think you always need to have this sort of long-term perspective because it's just you know, even when you look at the cost inputs, things like commodities, commodities are very, very long-term instruments by definition as well mm-hmm. in my model. They're actually, they're closer to like a 40-year a instrument inside my model. So, oh wow, and that's because the, the cycles over which these instruments tend to perform very predictably is just very, very long-term cycles. And so I, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of use in getting caught up in, you know, the guessing game of, of, you know, is there going to be a short-term downturn? I think if you're a, if you're a sensible long-term real estate investor, you know, approaching things from sort of a dollar cost averaging perspective is the right perspective. You should always have, you know, your book of business, I think, being reinvested into. And sure, maybe there's environments where, you know, you can have, you know, certain thresholds where, sure, maybe right now you don't want to be as aggressive as you might have been in say like a 2009 or 2010 type of environment when pricing starts to look very, very attractive again. But, you know, I don't, I'm not a big advocate of, of this sort of approach where you sort of move all in and all out of, of asset classes in a manner that's more consistent with like, you know, the way you might try to play poker. I mean, that's not, that's not the game that we're playing when you're, you're investing in real estate and especially you know, the the one thing that's especially, I think, sort of, of beneficial for a lot of real estate investors in this environment is that the rental market is going to remain, I think, very, very robust throughout any sort of downturn. In fact, I think the rental market is going to put sort of a floor under pricing to some degree because the, you know, people have to choose to live somewhere. And so if you're, if you're a landlord or, or you know, a, a residential real estate investor who's who's trying to find renters in this sort of environment, well, you know, you've got a lot of pricing power regardless of what's going on. And sure, your balance sheet might be impaired if prices were to fall a lot. But I think that you know, if you work your way through all of this, you know, even a downturn like this, you're going to find yourself on the other side and you know, still with a lot of pricing power relative to, to what renters are looking at. Yeah. And you know, the, the spike in real estate asset prices was a lot more pronounced than rent growth, you know, uh, much more pronounced. So, really, you know, I think those two things they need to. Um, yeah, they need to converge. It, it, They're going to continue. It's part of what makes the Fed's job pretty pretty difficult right now is that you've got upward pressure from rents, which, mm-hmm. you know, again is a it's sort of a it, not sort of it's definitely a rearview mirror looking indicator inside of like the CPI, CPI or the, um, or the PCE, but, um, 
rents are rents are really really sticky prices i mean it you're the likelihood of seeing a big big decline in in rent prices is extremely unusual and so rents tend to put sort of a floor under under real estate prices to some degree so but yeah those two prices in it it is one of the things that's somewhat disconcerting about where both prices are is that the the discrepancy between both right now is much larger than it was in 2008 so there's this right. There's a sort of outlier scenario that I've been thinking about where, well, if my, say, 10% estimate for prices is wrong, I mean, you've got a, I can't remember exactly what the number is, but the difference between like the owner's equivalent rent and actual home prices right now, I think it was like, I think something like 35% during yeah. the financial crisis. And it's much closer to like 50% right now, I think, something like that. I've, my numbers could be totally wrong, but that there the number is is substantially bigger and so if you're going to get this compression between the two or sort of mean reversion in the two um the downside in my model is that you could get more more of the pricing more of that mean reversion could come from the house price component in which case you know that's the one of the arguments for a, a more bearish position probably absolutely well um I know that you have to run soon, Colin, but you know, one thing that you mentioned talking about, you know, dollar cost averaging in and, you know, that long-term investment approach, I did want to ask you about disciplined funds and, you know, the model that your ETF uses. So when did you launch this ETF and could you tell us a little bit about the model behind it? Yeah. So it's a, you know, basically what we did with the, the ETF that we launched was we really, I built a very boring, plain vanilla stock bond type of fund. And my, my, my beef with multi-asset index funds has always been um, that, you know, like we call a 60-40 instance, for instance, we call it a balanced index fund. And the problem with a 60-40 fund is that a lot of people don't realize that 85% of the volatility in that fund is coming only from the 60% component. So from a risk perspective, your risk really isn't very balanced at all. It's almost coming exclusively from, or it's coming primarily from the equity market. And you see that even in a year like this year, where even when the bonds are performing really badly, you're still getting a, a, a huge skew in the, the downside variance of the portfolio because you're just much more overweight stocks than you really think in terms of like mm -hmm. a volatility perspective, because the you know, the global stock market's down something like 21% this year, whereas the, the bond market is down 11%, but which is, you know, awful for the bond market, but still, you know, on a, on a relative basis, that it's a much smaller decline relative to the equity market. And so the thing that exacerbates the, this though, that I always found really interesting is that multi-asset index funds, they're not market cap weighted. So when you look at something like the S&P 500, you know, the traditional idea of passive investing is just to, you follow the market cap weight. The market does what the market's going to do. And you right. just always rebalance back to that position. And the, the screwy thing with something like a 60-40 is that the relative market cap size of the stock versus the bond market, it changes a huge amount every year. So for mm -hmm. instance, in the early 90s, it was 35% stocks. It grew to 50% by 1999. It busted down back down to 35% by 2003. And that's a lot of what's happening in the underlying components is that you're actually just, you're really buying, when you buy something like a 60-40, you're buying something where the 60% component isn't just 
from a starting position riskier. It when it when the underlying market cap booms, that 60% component actually becomes even more risky. And mm -hmm. so you find yourself coming into a year like this year where you're not just overweight based on a volatility perspective, you're overweight based on the underlying market cap. And so I always found it odd that Vanguard or any sort of passive investing shop never started a true market cap weighted multi-asset index fund that just tracked these components. And so what the discipline fund actually does is it takes these market caps and it essentially inverts them. So coming into a year like 2022, our model is actually underweight the stock market. So we're closer to like a 40-60 index fund right now. Whereas if the stock market were to fall a lot, let's say it, but the market caps busted back down to that 35% level, our fund would actually, re, it would overbalance in the other, other way where we would become a 60-40, except we would do it when the market caps actually contract, when valuations actually mm. contract. And so, you know, I called it the discipline fund because the goal really was to create a, an index style, you know, something that's actually closer to a market cap weighted fund that helps investors navigate these markets in a manner that's much more consistent with the way that we actually perceive risk so that we're not just always overweight the stock market at the worst possible times. And so it follows an automated model uh, rather than being actively managed? It's fully automated. We are, you know, it's interesting. We can get into the, the legal debate about what an active index fund is and what isn't, because when you go through the regulatory process, you know, we're deemed technically an active index because our index is dynamic. It, it's not okay. a, you know, we don't just rebalance back to like- Ah, uh, I see, yeah. So because our index is dynamic, we're called a, technically an active index, which is, you know, it's kind of screwy because I would actually argue that since- our fund is much, much closer to the, the actual underlying market caps of the stocks and bond markets at any given average time relative mm -hmm. to like a 60-40. Um, I would argue we're much more passive in that sense than something like a 60-40 is. But because our index is dynamic, um, it's technically an active fund. But we're, you know, it's, it's low fee. It's 30, 39 bips for, you know, you're getting 8,000 plus global stocks and bonds in one holding and the, the secret sauce of an ETF and a, a fund like ours is that it's a fund of funds. And so it's kind of weird. The fund of fund space in the ETF world is still really, really small, which is fascinating because fund of funds are incredibly tax efficient because we can rebalance over time. Like if we rebalance back to our 60-40 weight at some point in the future, we'll do so without kicking off capital gains, which is something that a mutual fund essentially can't do. Um, so, be, and that's because we're using a fund to fund structure where we're able to rebalance underlying positions inside of one ETF. And that's the secret sauce of ETFs really is that they, they rebalance in kind and in a much more tax efficient manner than mutual funds do. Absolutely. I, I know tax efficiency is top of mind for a lot of our listeners and viewers and RIAs and, and wealth managers. Um, so we're going to make sure to link to that ETF in our show notes, um, I want to go check out and, and learn a little bit more about this. So it's it's actually global. It's not just U.S. stocks and bonds. It's global it's stocks. It's global stocks. We the the actual bond component deviates based on just the domestic bond market. So we there's mm -hmm. a lot of inefficiencies in owning foreign bonds. And in fact, I view foreign bonds in a lot of ways like you know foreign junk bonds, for instance, are basically just equities and drag in my view. 
So we, sure. you know, to get away from the tax inefficiencies of that and the, the higher costs and the, you know, the more equity like component, we basically just, we, our benchmark is basically the, the aggregate bond index, but we, the benchmark changes um, based on, on the credit market cycle to adjust for, for instance, right now we have no credit risk in the, in the bond component. So when it rebalances, it's rebalancing in this counter-cyclical way that it actually adjusts for how much credit risk is in the underlying bond market. So like right now we would argue that there's very, very high risk in like the high yield bond market. And so we want, we want no exposure inside of the bond component. So it's, you know, it's, it's all treasury bonds basically and, and mm-hmm. government you know, bonds. So it's, there's no credit risk, which unfortunately we still have duration risk. We still have interest rate risk, but that's, um, you know, that is a trade-off that in our opinion right now is worth it relative to having, you know, a lot of underlying credit risk that makes your bond portfolio look a lot more like an equity portfolio, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. And bonds should be ballast. Uh, At least that's what Ben Graham said in his book, um, so that's, that's been a classic in my library. I got to pick up your book as well, and, and I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. So Colin, I really appreciate all your time for our viewers and listeners in our previous episode, we covered inflation, deflation, disinflation, and then continuing that conversation, uh, in this episode about the housing market and about your ETF, really fascinating stuff. So all those links will be in our show notes And I also want to remind our viewers and listeners to subscribe to the show so you can be sure to receive our new episodes as we release them. Colin, thanks so much for joining the show today. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Andy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 